Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 193. Today is July 1st, 2016. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, here we are halfway through the year. We're going into the 4th of July weekend. Incidentally, uh, you may remember if you're a longtime listener that this is our anniversary. The Wellsteading Podcast was started over the July 4th weekend, 2013. So here we are a couple years later and nearly 200 episodes into the podcast. Why I don't want to get sentimental in this episode. I've been putting off doing an episode on the Brexit for a whole week now. So I want to get right down to business. I want to talk a little bit about this Brexit vote where the United Kingdom, or England in particular, voted to leave the European Union. I'm going to give you a little bit of my thoughts and insight on that. But the real thing I want to highlight is market resilience. And so as I go through and I point out things here and there about the Brexit, use this as a historical basis for other things that affect the market on short and near-term trends. And one thing I really want to point out, and this is probably the whole theme of today's episode, is, as well as a theme of a lot of things that I talk about in this podcast, and that's you know to take note of how wrong the experts were. The majority of the political pundits, the majority of the market experts, um, the pollsters, even the bookies that were they're creating the odds for the Brexit, they were all on the side of Remain, or at least the majority of them were. For the most part, the general consensus was that things were going to stay status quo and the uh, establishment was going to get their way. Well, the experts were wrong on that one. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. And another key thing I want to point out, and I want to point this out right up front, and again, this is a common theme of things that I talk about here in the podcast, and that's about how you can't trust media hype. People in the media, whether it's the financial media or just the popular press, TV, radio, podcast, uh, websites, whoever it is, the majority of media, I guess you can say all of media, they're looking to create revenue. The way they do that is by selling advertising. The way they can increase their advertising rates is by getting a larger audience. So when it comes to TV, it's about viewership. When it comes to websites, it's about getting clicks. You know, they call it eyeballs in the industry. So they hype every event that comes up, whether it's important or whether it's not. One reason that I think that the markets have recovered so well from what happened just a week ago when it was announced that the Britain would be, you know, the vote went in favor of leaving the European Union. You know, the markets initially spent about three days falling apart, and then the last three or four days they've come up. We're only a little more than 1% off of all-time record highs on the S&P 500, and this is five or six trading sessions from last week when they were saying the world was falling apart. Now, a couple things on that and a couple things on how the media hype things. The major indexes never went down than I think, I don't know, maybe 4 or 5%. A market crash is not a 5% move. A market crash is a 25 or a 30% move. Now, we haven't had something like that in about seven years, and so that's why they keep hyping up these little 3 to 5% moves. But trust me, even though we saw a lot of volatility in the, in the past week, that was not a crash. That wasn't a severe correction. And for those of you that are younger or, or new to investing, sometime in the future, you are going to experience a 20 or a 30% market full-blown crash, and it won't be pleasant. So point one is, as always, ignore the gloom and doom from the mainstream media. People that are going to try and sell you gold or people that are trying to hype some type of bad news bears opinion or report, they're going to take advantage of these type situations. 
I've been saying for about 18 months now that I think we're uh, due for a solid correction, a move to a bear market that would put us into a good 20, 25, 30% correction, but it hasn't happened yet. I didn't think that the Brexit vote was going to cause it. If you go back and listen a, a couple episodes ago, I talked about the problem with the European Union. Those problems existed last week. They exist this week. That's going to be the continuing problem. It's all about Europe having a common currency, but not having a federal institution to support and back it up. I'm not going to dwell on that in this episode. You can go back and listen. I think that might have been episode 191. The point that I want to make is that there will be some type of external shock to the system that will drop this market a good 25%. It's happened throughout history. We have one about every five to seven years. It's part of the business cycle. We're well overdue for one. All of the central bank money printing and quantitative easing has masked over those problems. But think of a rubber band. Whenever you stretch it and stretch it and stretch it, eventually it will break. And the more you've stretched it, the harder that recoil will be when it does break. But what you have to remember is just because I believe that that's likely to happen or going to happen, it doesn't mean that every little thing that I see do I suspect is, is being the, uh, the trigger point for that. For example, this, this Brexit vote. You know, I didn't sell all my stocks going into the Brexit vote because I didn't think that it was going to be a black swan event. The black swan event is something that's a term that's been coined in over the last, you know, seven years or so. I guess it became popular after the, the market crash of 2008. The origin of the term black swan event is that you have this flock of white swans and they're on the lake and all you ever see is a white swan. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, flies in a black swan. So it's an unexpected event. Well, by the very nature of the Brexit vote, it wasn't unexpected. I mean, there was a probability that Britain would leave the, the UK, even, even if it might have been a small probability in some people's minds, it was still a probability. A true black swan event is something that happens that no one anticipated. That's what generally causes major external shocks to the system. That's likely to be what's going to prompt the next major downturn in the business cycle. China coming out and devaluating their currency 20% or some type of civil disturbance, maybe you know a terrorist attack or a, a political coup or even an act of nature, you know, a major earthquake in California that, that uh, devastates Silicon Valley and, and uh, you know, the financial section in Los Angeles, something like that. That's a black swan event. A vote where there's one of two outcomes is not a black swan event. The smart money, people that really know how to play this game, are always hedging their bets. And so even if they think that the outcome is 90% in their favor, they know that there's at least a 5% risk and they plan accordingly. For example, let's, let's look at the bookies on this. And, and there was a lot made before this election about how the gamblers were placing their bets and what the odds were. I want to talk about that in, in two ways. One is, think about the bookies. The casino never loses. They always adjust the odds so that they get their 5% cut, no matter who wins or who loses. So after the vote, the bookies didn't lose any money. The bookies always make their money, just as the smart money generally does too because they hedge their bets. They're playing both sides of the coin. Something else I want to point out about the, the betting that was involved with whether Britain would stay or go and the almost near obsession that the media was placing on those bookie odds. And this is going to go along, a little bit along with what I'm going to say about the polls as well. But I wonder to what degree the gambling industry was manipulated to make those odds more in favor of, of the Remain side. 
And for all of you that think that I'm just going off on a tinfoil hat conspiracy, just think about this for a minute. The EU establishment didn't pull any punches. They threw everything they had at the opposition to get this vote through so that Britain would remain in the European Union. They had all the major universities, all the economists, all the think tanks, all the big politicians, had the media, the universities, uh, you know, even in this case, the bookies were all saying, no, it's going to go in favor of remaining. They even took advantage that last week of the political assassination to say, you know, what a bunch of mean haters the people on the leave side were. And they spent millions on advertising. So here's my question. Why wouldn't they have also spent at least a few million to manipulate the gambling industry? And what I mean by that is, you know, anytime you place a bet, it changes the odds. That's why the casino never loses. So one of the arguments for the credibility of the gaming industry over just standard political polls is that generally pollsters have an agenda, and so they can manipulate the answer they want by the way they ask the question, where when people are betting their hard-earned money on an outcome, they're going to bet the way they really feel. And so that's why gaming-type odds are far better at predicting political outcomes than just traditional polls. That's the way the conventional wisdom goes. But what if a lot of those bets being placed were just not regular individuals? What if some of the EU-loving establishment came in and they used some of that advertising budget to bet in favor of the Remain vote? Well, what would that do? That would skew the odds in their favor. Now, again, you may say, hey, that's a crazy conspiracy theory. Why would they do that? Well, they do that to manipulate the polls because virtually every news uh, press release that I read or that I listened to continually referred to the fact that the, the bookie odds were in favor of Remain. But that's not the way it worked out by a large margin. So that's why I'm skeptical of the odds that were laid out, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if they had used some of their advertising or propaganda money to influence those gambling odds. And so I know if it were me and I were the marketing guy, I'd be making sure that some of my advertising budget was spent with the bookies. Now here's another thing about the polls, and this is a key point about how the establishment and the experts were all wrong. If you remember Thursday evening, you know, hours after the, the British polls had closed, they were predicting a solid win for the Remain crowd. But what happened? Well, much later into the evening, those odds started to change, and they flip-flopped, and then it became evident that the people were actually voting to leave. The media people were in a tizzy. I stayed up well into the wee hours of the morning on Mountain Time in the U.S. watching the BBC and Sky TV because I found it so amusing to watch the, the disbelief and the confusion of the British mainstream media and the commentary coming out of Europe. So why were the polls so wrong? Well, again, this is a point that I think that has the establishment and the, the media and the elites so concerned is that their polling data is wrong. Well, how did that happen? It was because people lie. People plain out lie to pollsters. And the reason that happens is because when you have the media hammering people day after day, uh, calling the opposition to, to whatever the popular press wants, you know, they, they call their opposition names, they belittle them, they make fun of their intelligence, they call them haters or racist or whatever it is. And so when you're in a toxic environment like that and you have an, an opposition opinion, you don't voice it in public. You simply just smile, shake your head, and say, yeah, I'm, I'm with the status quo. And then that way people leave you alone. But when you go to the polls, you actually vote your own convictions. That's what we saw happen in Britain, and I think we're seeing that more and more in U.S. politics as well. So here we are a week after the vote. 
you know, those first three trading sessions starting last Friday, things were falling apart. The press overhyped it. It was an overreaction to a non-event. It's not that it wasn't an important event. I'll get to that in a minute. But as I pointed out, it wasn't a black swan event. It was an event that, however low the odds, it was still anticipated. And so that's why it was unlikely to cause the markets, you know, to crash 20% in and of itself. Now, there can be some domino effects with this, and we're going to talk about those in a minute. But I believe that that's why the markets faded for about three days, and then, it, and then all that pessimism petered out. And like we've seen consistently, and I mean consistently for at least the last three years, traders come in and they buy on the dips. A lot of this has to do with the fact that the United States uh, overall market remains the strongest in the world and our interest rates are the highest. And so even when there's relatively little money left to chase these trends in the U.S., our stock markets and our bonds are still attracting literally billions and trillions of dollars from outside the U.S. And so consequently, over these past three days, you've seen the market rise and we're back, you know, within a percent or so of all-time historic highs. I still remain overall pessimistic, though. Personally, I'm still only holding about 30% of my portfolio in a, some form of different equities because I remain concerned that we're built on a weak foundation. I would rather underperform the market in good times than track the market in bad times. And what I mean by that is if the market's up 5% and I'm only up 3%, that's okay. What I don't want to happen is for the market to be down 25% and, and for me to be down 25%. That's the defensive landmine strategy that I've been talking about. You stay enough in the game so you can make some money if things work out, but should things fall apart, you still have the majority of your money in cash so that it's ready and available to invest when things fall apart. And so as far as any trades that I've made in the past week, I've held all my existing positions. The only thing I did that was any different was last Friday when the British sterling pound dropped 10%. I did go in and buy a small position of that for my portfolio. And when I talk about small, uh, generally I'm talking something in the neighborhood of, of 5%. My thought on going long in the British pound, and incidentally I did that through an exchange-traded fund with the ticker symbol FXB. That's Foxtrot X-Ray Bravo. I announced that last week after I did it. I did it before the market closed on Friday. That was listed as a, a blog post over at investablewealth.com. Now, I made that trade not because I thought overnight the currency would switch in my favor. I did that because I just felt that overall, with the British pound being at a 30-year low, it just to me seemed oversold. That position is currently down about 3% from where I bought it. I'm still not worried about it. Uh, to me, again, this is one of those trades that I could hold for a couple months or I could hold longer if need be because I think things will shift in favor of the UK. I don't think their exit from the EU is going to be devastating for their to their economy. I also don't think that it's necessarily going to happen overnight. You know, they have at least two years to make it happen. I wouldn't also be at all surprised if it doesn't get walked back. Most people in the political establishment want them to remain in the European Union. And so you're familiar with the way your local school board or city council uh, or the, um, the, the board of directors of your HOA work. Whenever they get the result they want, they close the voting and they move forward with it. Whenever they don't get the result they want, well, they drag their feet, they delay the implementation, or they hold another vote. So perhaps we're going to see that happen with the UK as well. Who knows? 
in any case, I don't think it's going to be devastating to the uh, pound sterling one way or the other. The sterling has taken a hit because they did get their three-star credit rating lowered. You might remember back to, well, I think it was towards the end of 2011, that same thing happened with the U.S. whenever there was a fear of a government shutdown. And yes, it, it did make our currency drop. But again, look at the strength of the U.S. dollar since 2014. It's up something like 25%. I don't think there's going to be an exact parallel with the British pound. But I do think that once things stabilize a little bit, people are going to realize that London has been and will remain a center of finance and a center of trade. And that overall, the U.K., if they're not any better for being out of the European Union, I don't think they're going to be any worse. A lot of this, too, that we have to get through is the political uncertainty that's come up in the past few days with who is going to be the next prime minister of England. It was no surprise that immediately after the vote, David Cameron announced his uh, his resignation and then he'd stepped down sometime, I think, in September. The shock has come just in the past day or so when, again, the experts were wrong. They felt that the shoe-in for the next prime minister was going to be the former mayor of London, who's Boris Johnson. But he couldn't put a coalition together, and he announced that he's not even going to run or try. So it looks like the next prime minister is either going to be a man named Gove or a woman named May. Now, I'm not an expert in, in British politician, but superficially, just what I know of those two, they might as well have had David Cameron stay in. Because neither one of those other two people are any type of change agent. My cynical political analysis of the situation is that this is no different than not too long ago when Paul Ryan replaced John Bonner as a Republican Speaker of the House. I mean, what was the difference? Tweedledum or Tweedledee? I think you're likely to see the same thing with the Prime Minister in England since Boris Johnson is out of the running. So until that gets resolved, the pound is definitely going to be weak. But for now, I remain unconcerned. I think that the pound has a much brighter future than the euro. And speaking of the pound versus the euro, let's think about what's likely to happen here in the future. I do think that right now the elite establishment is running scared. They're very concerned about this vote because they thought it was going to go in their favor. And they're worried about this uh, not being contained and it spreading to other countries in the EU and, you know, perhaps to other anti-establishment groups, you know, a la... Donald Trump in the United States. And I think that this discontent is likely to be boiling over. We're seeing it throughout the globe. One threat to the British pound, at least in the short term, could be the, the uh, dissolution of the United Kingdom. And, and what I mean by that is that I wouldn't be surprised if in the future, and this may not happen next month, but certainly in coming years, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Scotland voted for their own independence and Northern Ireland voted to go back over to the Republic of Ireland. Short term, that wouldn't be good for the British pound. Overall, though, I personally am in favor of local governance. And if Scotland wants to break away from the UK, I think that's their right. If they want to branch off and think they can do things better on their own, good for them. Likewise, if Northern Ireland feels more of an affinity to the Republic of Ireland, which they should, they're on the same island, they're across the waterway from, from the main island of Britain. And if the majority of those people want to join on to the Republic of Ireland, Again, good for them. I think they can probably make it work. I don't think someone in London should be telling someone in Scotland what they have to do. No more that I believe that someone in Brussels, you know, a bureaucrat in the EU, should be telling someone in London what to do. I think that markets and people work best when money and people are free to do what they want to do. So even though I think that the UK in the future has the possibility of dissolving, I still would be more in favor of the British pound because I think likewise, the European Union is likely to dissolve as well. As I mentioned in episode 191, 
the European Union has the problem of the common currency, and it's shared between a much larger population in many more countries than that of the British pound. And so if and when countries start breaking away from the EU, like Britain has, that's going to put a strain on the most richest country in the EU, which right now is Germany, and I don't think they're going to want to foot the bill. And so I can see the EU eventually breaking up and the euro definitely going away. Britain was the first country that could leave the EU because they had their own currency. It was less of an issue. If the Netherlands wants to leave the EU, well, they have to deal with a currency problem. Since England has always had its own pound, they didn't have any currency entanglements, and so it was easy for them to leave. But now that you have the second strongest economy pulling out of the Union, it makes the overall EU weaker, and it puts more of the burden on Germany. And what I mean by the burden is that if those southern countries continue to have deteriorating economic conditions, if the banks in Spain and Portugal and Italy, if they start falling apart, since they're dealing in the common European currency, someone's got to step in and back them up. Well, before it could have been Germany and Britain and France. Well, now Britain's washing their hands of that. So the responsibility falls on the remaining strong countries to bail out the weaker countries. I think this is a real and present danger. Take a look at the status of European banks. Those southern banks are performing abysmally, um, even in Germany. You've heard me talk before about Deutsche Bank. Its stock is in the tank. Although it has very good management, it has all types of derivatives and it has its tentacles out in all those southern European countries, throughout the Middle East, in all kinds of emerging markets that have now fallen apart. And if the price of oil stays low or drops lower, and if the emerging markets or the commodity-based markets start defaulting or start having problems, for example, Venezuela, Brazil, Nigeria, well, when those loans come due, they're all going to fall back on Deutsche Bank. And that's going to be a problem. And if it collapses and the UK is not part of the EU, well, they're not going to have to worry about bailing them out. So watch for that. Watch for continued problems and malcontents cropping up in the upcoming Spanish elections. We still have the unresolved Greek debt, which is going to be, again, coming due, and you'll be seeing that in the headlines. Continental Europe has had and will continue to have more problems than I believe Britain is going to have. So that'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm going to leave you with an old Beatles song that I thought about this past week as things were unraveling in the UK and in the EU. And so until the next episode, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of retirement.